0: You're listening to Indie Live Radio, and this is the latest in our series of programmes called Yes Group Spotlight. And this week, the spotlight is on Voices for Scotland. Voices for Scotland arranged an event recently in which they invited Gerry Hassan to come and talk to their group about all things to do with Scottish independence and how to achieve it. Gerry Hassan is a writer, commentator and thinker about Scotland, about the UK about politics and ideas. He's currently, he's written and edited numerous books on Scotland, from the setting up of the Parliament to its records, its policies, and in-depth studies of Scottish politics. We'd like to say here, we really appreciate that Voices for Scotland have allowed us to broadcast the event, and we hope you enjoy listening to it.
1: Thanks very much for joining us tonight. We're very happy that we've got Jerry Hassan joining us tonight. He was actually requested in previous get-together, so I'm very happy that um, we actually managed to get him. Um, Jerry is a Scottish journalist, writer and author, so I'm sure you, many of you will have um, seen what he's been writing anyways. We also had a wee blog that we had shared um, before the get-together tonight, but he's also written several books. and. Um, Yeah, we're really lucky because he's basically a very, very good Scottish commentator on Scottish current history. So I'm sure tonight will be an interesting discussion. Tonight, we'll talk about independence as the new normal and especially how it's still important to stay open minded and open hearted to those who have not made up their opinion that independence is the right way for Scotland or not. But I'm going to hand over now. And if you've got any questions, just let me know.
2: Okay, yeah, you hand it over to me, Clara.
1: Yes, to you.
2: Okay, thank you very much, Clara. And um, thank thank you, everyone. Um, I hope you can all um, hear me okay. Um, it's always a funny experience speaking in a, into the cyber world. Um, I'm going to talk for about 15, maybe maximum 20 minutes. and Obviously, it's, it's got, there's going to be some element of simplicity here because I'm trying to cover a lot of ground about how independence is changing and... Uh, consequences for that, for independence, and and understanding the union argument as well. um, Huge, huge challenges to that, obviously. I mean, I I do think, um, starting with that obvious point, that independence has become normal, become the mainstream. That's quite a fundamental shift. I think it's, at least in the the foreseeable future, um, an irreversible one, in the sense that I don't mean independence going necessarily win automatically, but just that it is... The mainstream argument. It's, it's, it's a normal argument in, in, in Scottish public life and an idea. And from that I think lots and lots of consequences flow uh, for modern Scotland. It changes how independence has to be. It changes the argument for the union and how that has to be um, if it is to have any success or, or just cut through on any level. Um, I think it changes the nation of Scotland um, and how we see ourselves. Um, and it changes uh, the UK um, in ways I think it both, um, you know, <laughs> has issues with and, and and kind of resistance to. Um, so it brings a, a bigger responsibility to Indy. And so what, what I want to do is just to explore some of those um, things and then how it changes um, the argument. Um, first, I think independence isn't in this necessarily just the headline figures or even the, 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 the you know, dynamic of nine poles in a row. It's about uh, independence as an idea. Now, independence as an idea is different from the SNP's offer. I I still take the view that in twenty fourteen, uh, the idea of independence kind of won the debate. In that obviously, independence lost the vote, but that a whole part of Scotland, including lots and lots of soft no voters, we've got great you know survey evidence on this. They really like the idea of independence. They just why wouldn't you? Independence is a good thing, standing on your own two feet, taking responsibility, etc. And and a significant part of the no vote didn't vote yes because of, there was various details they didn't like on the economy, or um, there was the issue of Alex Salmon to some, and, and, and there was a couple of other issues as well that were the main salient issues. But that was quite significant. And that has become even more so since since uh, 2014, part of that fundamental um, shift. So, a couple of areas I think in which independence has to sort of think about and change its argument. One is there's success here, but success means you know you have to build on that and not take it for granted. The drivers for Indy in the last poll showed that 64% of people thought Scotland and England were heading in different political directions. And 63% said they don't trust the UK government to act in the best interests of Scotland. Hard hardly surprising these figures. But if you want to get into a real sustainable winning position, and I'm, I'm talking here about uh, my experience of the 97 referendum, when, we, when I was involved in polling on that before the referendum, you need to push those figures further up into, into at least the 70s. I mean, when we won the 97 referendum, those sort of figures we had, we had figures in the high 70s, in the 80s on things, practically, you know, <laughs> practically consensus. Um, apart from a small uh, part of the Tory um, vote. And 55% of people still have you know, huge concerns about independence and the Scottish economy. That figure needs to be, the negatives need to be driven down as well. Second thing is the issue of leadership. As we all know, Boris Johnson's hugely unpopular, You know, 76% uh, unpopularity in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, hugely popular. Those figures might not always remain. What happens... If Boris Johnson you know, highly likely goes before the next election, it is just possible he, he may be you know, succeeded by a leader who is you know, significantly less unpopular. What happens if there's a transition to a, a post-Sturgeon leadership before, before the next uh, referendum? Indy's also got to come up with more detail. I know some of us get a bit bashed on this sometimes, but there are serious questions behind, you know, the finances, the debt, you know, the perennial currency question uh, Europe. And I think as much as the detail, it's kind of how they're answered that matters. So for some of us, we all understood why the White Paper emerged last time. Um, there's was a whole host of reasons. The SNP hadn't thought they would win um, a majority in 2011, so they had to suddenly produce all this evidence and, and a kind of story and a vision of Scotland. Obviously, the main offer of independence comes from the Scottish Government, but we can't have it just being, it needs to be more widely owned somehow, uh, the white paper, the answers that we, we come up with um, collectively on those, on those questions. I think the ownership issue um, is as much important. Obviously, the detail uh, matters as well. And, and a, a problem for independence, a bit, from success, 13 years of the SNP in office, is that independence cannot be Cannot be synonymous with the, the status quo of present day Scotland. Some SNP supporters fall into this all the time. They defend every single thing that's going on in present day Scotland. That's the responsibility of the Scottish government. It's you know, it's the thing that you can find some people defending. You know, a train that's not been cancelled or something from you know the Inverness Perth line or something. That that is a disastrous pitfall to fall into. Independence has to be about change and a wee controversial example on this uh, from the present day, which is much worse, of course, is the example of Donald Trump. And obviously, we have nothing in common with Donald Trump, but Donald Trump ran, obviously fakely, but Donald Trump ran as an insurgent in 2016. I was there, I was at his rallies. However, you know, grotesque he is, he stood for something in 2016, and Hillary Clinton stood for some kind of ambivalence. Uh, And so Trump now finds, all the other stuff as well, that he cannot run as an outsider. He's the sitting president. He's you know, all the other stuff as well. And what it kind of shows is you cannot, when you're in office in, in, for quite a period, you cannot run as an, as an insurgency, which we did in 2014. We're going to have much, much more difficulty doing that next time. And so there's a balancing act needed here. We cannot be the status quo because that's a disaster. And yet, at the same time, we cannot just be this automatic um, insurgency. So there's a navigation needed there. Um, and probably different kind of independence messages um, as well, but it definitely needs, needs some thinking through. That's going to be on this wee bit. Um, at the moment, maybe we can get into. And running through all this again as well, I think it was one of the great unexplored areas of 2014. It's even more so. Independence is about psychology, because it, it unleashes all sorts of stuff in people: hopes, fears, emotions, and issues around risk. And uncertainty and underneath all that in 2014 and more so now is who manages the risk and how do you deal with it and who do you trust most etc and do you trust collectively the people um, of Scotland and I think that was there was a kind of missing issue in 2014 of the, the risk in independence because the risk is been something about us having confidence in ourselves so we need to you know there needs to be a wee bit of movement in advance on that so I also think Winning in politics is about understanding um, your opponents. Um, And pro-Ben Jackson wrote a very good book on this, um, which is not a pro-independence book, but called The Case for Scottish Independence, an academic book just out where he said that, I I think completely right here, I think, that over the last 40 years, pro-union sentiment has consistently stereotyped independence. They've, They've assumed basically that we're all Nats, we're all in flags and symbols, and if you know not, Bruce and Bannockburn, other stuff, uh, and looking into the past. Um, indeed, there was a historian, Richard Tomes, presenting this exact case last weekend in The Spectator. Um, and, and what he says is they never understood the main argument, how, how independence has become mainstream, is about democratic legitimacy, obviously, and who do you trust to run Scotland? But similarly, independence, as it moves into this winning position, we have to be careful not to be hoist by our own success here and overconfidence, because there is a trap that we know of and we see of stereotyping all pro-union opinion. Just as all pro-independence opinion isn't Scottish nationalists, clearly all pro-union opinion isn't isn't unionist. Um, it can be, you know, just the fact of they don't believe in the case for independence or are not yet convinced or have other attachments to Britain which might not be unionist, because unionism is, is something that drives some of them mad, of course. Unionism is a form of nationalism. And um, a good friend of mine, an indie blogger said this to me last year and she just came up with this off the top of her head Which she said there's no such thing as no voters there's no such thing as no voters there's only people who voted no and and I actually think that is both brilliant it's not completely correct because there are people who are fanatical no voters like there's on our side but as a philosophy of life I just love that and and that's how I like to think of of how I do my politics, no such thing as no voters, you know. Doesn't mean they're all on the road, not yes yet, because there's a little bit of, I personally think, a little bit sanctimoniousness and that, but you know, uh, we're not going to convince every single person in Scotland, but I just love that. So, points on the argument for the union and how to defeat it. There's the power of British identity um, and Britishness. This gets to the point of the union question as an existential one, and I really don't think the independence debate is the thinking you're Scottish or British or the prioritisation of that. When, if we become independent, a British dimension will remain in Scotland. We will have had three hundred years of British history. There will be pan-British, you know, systems of cooperation. You know, the Irish example is is um, rather germane here. Uh, Ireland remained with systems of cooperation, and even after the final break uh, in nineteen forty-nine, remained in the travel to work area, etc., etc. The solidarity with Sunderland um, argument, which is about the class um, above uh, nation argument, you hear it um, a lot, but you know, class solidarity is international um, and not about borders. And I always think there's an example of several British trade unions, including Unite, actually organise in the UK and in Ireland, and the same would be true in, in independent Scotland. The, there's the pooling and, and and sharing argument. I'm going to go back to this in a second, which is about obviously one of the most Unequal countries in the world, uh, and kind of about trying to say, you know, why why do you want to leave a dependency culture? We would sort of look after you, etc. And and don't you dare, you know, why are you're not gra- grateful uh, for that? There's the argument that Scotland can't afford a welfare state of these standards. Uh, we c- we, c- we could not afford to rescue banks in 2008. Uh, we couldn't afford the COVID-19 uh, support. And this gets down to a kind of an argument which is about seems to come down to big. Is beautiful. Clearly, big is not beautiful. It depends what you do with the big. And, and, and that small is somehow problematic. Whereas we know that the, the most successful countries in the world on sort of COVID, a lot of them have been small, Denmark, you know, and New Zealand being the, the, the cycle. So it's what you do with your public policy, what you prioritize, not the size. And the final one I think here. Is that we are safe in the UK? This is, I think, we're in a world that is increasingly, you know, there are lots and lots of risks and threats China, Russia, um, terrorism, you know, whether the United States ever uh, stops being, you know, what it is at the moment. We're going to hear more of, and that implies that somehow we should cling to the global foreign policy and global position of the UK, which is, you know, to put it mildly, I think, part of the problem and that we couldn't chart our own course, which is part of a, you know, a more mature, progressive um, international uh, politics. But I think, just to return to this, this point of pooling and sharing, what that does, I think, and I, and I think this is really, uh, personally, yeah. a, a disastrous approach for the union argument, it reduces the union to a sort of, basically, a transactional nationalism, which is goes along the lines of, we identify, whatever you think of the figures here, we identify that about £1,975, supposedly per head, comes from UK to Scotland. Now, this, this is, of course, those figures are open to question. But what I think it misses, is so much it misses, apart from bringing it down to money, is what happens when a right-wing Tory government starts to undermine Barnett? Because if, if we continue to have right-wing Tory governments in the UK and they get more right-wing, Barnet's not going to remain. Barnet is going to be, you know, diluted, or it has been diluted by uh, previous Tory government or, or put under attack. Ten years of austerity, that has a pair head uh, impact on Scotland and a no deal Brexit, and indeed the cost of Brexit all, already. So that's a terrible position for the union to put itself in. So just some quick, some quick final thoughts of what that does with the argument. We are in an asymmetrical uh, debate. It's not a debate of equals because independent supporters are up for this for obvious reasons. The union side doesn't really want to have this argument, and that that plays into the massively the dynamics of, of this debate. And also that a large part of the union argument really doesn't understand the argument and doesn't understand where you know the independence case is coming from. But I still think, and this is a note of caution here, I've got two sort of final points here. Don't underestimate the UK government because we all do it at points. We all are um, guilty at points of playing into an othering of the UK state, which is, you know, <laughs> the way it's behaving at the moment, pretty understandable. But it could just act in a strategic way. You saw the Tory war gaming this week, which again, didn't have much in it. Um, but it is possible just that, it, I mean, this is what they should have done after 2014. They could call a new Union vote before a pro independence vote, they could they could they could get in before there's um, an independence vote, and pose a new kind of settlement to the Scots, which would have to be you know obviously very very comprehensive and worked out. I'm, I'm thinking that's possibly probably not going to happen, but but it is true that as 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 their take of Britain and, and Scotland's place in it declines, there still is an element of intelligence in the British establishment in a small part of the British political classes, in things like the intelligence and security forces, who these people, whatever people think about the United Kingdom, these people do not want Scotland to leave. It's one, it's about an idea of Britain that's in decline admittedly, and secondly, it's about a geopolitical idea of Britain, it's how Britain fits into into their version of the world, um, and so on, uh, defence, foreign policy, diplomacy, prestige, you know, those sort of things. Um, So just don't underestimate it. Um, and that then requires no complacency from the independent side, because I think sometimes there is a little bit of sense of thinking, you know, that we're only on one way, one gradient, on the way to, you know, victory, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this cannot be, there are, there are signs or, you know, what would you say, things that are not entirely, completely as great as they should be on the independent side. The SNP have been in office 13 years. That brings political cost with it. There is the, you know, maybe Nicola Sturgeon's leadership, there's too much, what we don't to say, too much political capital put into that. And that comes with, you know, people are human, they tire, etc. They make uh, mistakes. Um, and similarly, there's a kind of like a carping in part of the independence movement as well. But, you know, why can't we have independence, you know, uh, now practically, why can't we declare um, UDI, which would be illegal, basically, as, as far as I can work out. Um, and it's about how we have that wider independence culture that I've called independence of the Scottish mind. And I think that the, this is where I'll end on this point at the moment is that Vinton O'Toole's argument about this when he was writing about Ireland's example uh, and the Scottish independence debate in 2014, he said independence is about the art of growing up. And and I, I love that phrase because what he means is it's about acknowledging your shortcomings, that you know we're not perfect, we won't be perfect in independence, but we take responsibility for who we are. And that does require that, that we do a different politics and a different independence from 2014. And really, in a way, probably a different politics from what we've done in the last six years. We've had lots of successes, but there's still lots uh, more to do to get to that independent Scotland. So I'll end there at a moment. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. That was, um, that was really great. Um, I I really enjoyed um, reading the article that you had also posted on on your blog and um, I just the idea really resonates with me that we shouldn't consider all the no-voters as unionists or as unions etc because even just in my close group of friends I've got quite a lot of people who were no-voters in the past but they were so far off from being um, a unionist that um, you know, you immediately alienate them. Yeah. So I think it's really important that we keep highlighting that and um, yeah, keep remembering that. We've got a comment from Robert Ingram in context of the um, institution.
3: Right. My question is an independent Scotland, and it is coming, Jerry. It may uh, be a couple of years yet, but it is coming. An independent Scotland is going to require a written constitution. And historically in Scotland, it's been the concept that the people are the supreme authority. And this stems back from the declaration of a growth. Now a written constitution should therefore have input from the people who actually authorize it. It's not sufficient just to leave it to the politicians because uh, well, I'm sure we have some good politicians up there,
0: Mm.
3: but we also have a lot who were not very good. And uh, we are actually, our written constitution grants powers for the operation of the nation Mm. and the protection and the rights of the people. At the present moment, there is no capability, there's no facility for the people themselves to actually set out what their views are. Now the, the, the um, charity Constitution for Scotland has actually set out a platform whereby anyone in Scotland can go onto their website and have their say. We set out a modal constitution which was been uh, created over a period of about 11 years A lot of people have inputted into it, and according to actual um, Dr Elliot uh, Bulmar, Mm -hmm. it's about time that it went to actually public review, which is what we did on the 1st of September. We actually want to give everybody in Scotland the opportunity to have their say in this
2: constitution. Would you support such a constitution? Uh, Yes, of course. Um... Uh, thank thank you for that uh, Robert that was fantastically um, just totally uh, you know on one of the most fundamental issues um, facing us. I think I think you both you mean I, I don't disagree with a single single word you've said and I think we, we obviously you, you, the point you made about the, the, the input from the people being you know where do people have? A way to say how they are governed and the rules they make um, and decisions made in Scotland. How, how how do they do that? Absolutely right. And the fact that we cannot have a version of independence in our future created just by the politicians. It, I mean, it also chimes with, A, there's, there's, there's a move, as you know, to, to a more popular constitutionalism across the world and um, secondly the, the great Scottish tradition of that and I think there is a fantastic history there I mean there's even histories as you will know all this of course that some yeah. of our history people even don't know we had a history of direct democracy on things like between on temperance and between dry yeah. and wet areas we Scotland kind of was if not led the world I don't want to be into that sort of triumphalism but we were one of the leaders in the world in direct um, democracy and um, so I completely agree with you and what I even think more is that um because various Labour people I know, or um, pro-union people, as I try and get my phraseology right, will say, to me, oh, Scotland and SNP, we don't do accountability. I don't think we've ever really done accountability because people in Scotland are a part of a union that is, the United Kingdom's not a democracy, and people across Britain feel strangers in their own home, and that's even more so in Scotland. So um, I absolutely think your thing is timely, and I know the work of Elliot Boomer as well, very well. So... Um, Well done on that, and have you had much come back from politicians on it, not that they are the, you know, Robert? The politicians don't uh, want
3: to know at the present moment in time, and quite frankly, we're not interested. (laughs) Because at the present moment, we want to actually get the people themselves, the grassroots, the power. One of the best examples of people power is currently happening right now during the pandemic,
2: Mm, The
3: politicians may be coming out with their overall policies, etc. But the real work is being done and initiated by the people in the communities. But totally. totally That is where our strength is. Let's bear in mind that in Scotland, the bulk of people operate in small and single jobs. It's not the big corporations. Mm. Unfortunately, our politicians listen to the big corporations. Yeah, instead of the ordinary people. They want the the people's voice to be heard. And it's not going to be perfect. It will have to be gone through and scrutinized legally, etc., but done properly. Mm. I'm sorry, I don't have enough respect for the political regime Mm. to actually say, let's leave it to them. There's a lot of people doing. But the reality is they're no different from us and there's many of them do not have our worldly
2: experience. Yes, yes. I also think just that the, the, the wider point I would make, I mean, again, I'm in complete agreement with you. I mean, I, I, I do think it's a tough act. Some, some for people that are decent trying to be politicians, but I, I, I just don't want to be uh, living in an independent Scotland where it's about the SNP's vision or language. My whole adult life has been, you know, the normal powers, uh, are full powers of a normal parliament. I actually find that quite an unattractive view at all. I want to live in a Scotland that's independent with the parliament has less power and, and we have self-governing communities, we have a local democracy worthy of its name. And yeah. Robert, you're absolutely right. The, when I was doing something last week with um, Compass, the, um, the the centre-left think tank, and they asked me this great question at the end, what gives me hope at the moment? I'm talking about Scotland, but just what gives me hope? I mean, I meant in a wider sense. And, you know, it's a tough question. And I said exactly something along the lines. You're saying that in the area I live in on Glasgow's south side, that the, the wealth of, uh, in the real sense of the word, of self-organising people, putting other people first, you know, looking after each other, doing food runs, um, you know, just offering support in all sorts of ways, practical, um, emotional and others. And I don't, I mean, it's obviously multiple multiple times true with Westminster, but, but how they'll, I hate words like learning curve, but how that version of Scotland feeds back into government to the fact that it's a completely different take. Because, I mean, Andy Whiteman has been very good on this, but it is true that the centralisation of Scotland predates the Scottish Parliament, predates thatcher, and it's been Mm -hmm. going on since probably about the 1929 local government reorganisation. And as the Scottish states got bigger, which began long before the Scottish Parliament, they've been, in an understandably, pushing and shoving to take up more, more public room. Uh, that's kind of understandable in a, in a dynamic way uh, or a system dynamic way, but eventually, I and mean, I think it has reached its point of like uh, you no know, return in a way. And, uh, and, and, and so we have to come up with a version of independence and a version of the future that treats people as adults. So I'm fully with you, Robert. So thank you. Yeah, yeah the actual, uh, act of,
3: at this present moment, Scotland is the most centralised country. As far as governance is concerned, in the whole of Europe, yeah. we have less elected representation than any other country in Europe. I believe Andy Whiteman actually came out, or no, not Andy Whiteman. Um, Commonweal came out with, um, or was it before them, Reed Foundation? Yeah, yeah, they came out with the silent crisis, etc. But one of the best examples of small government we could see in Germany which is probably one of the most democratically divided down, they split their government authority, where we have it all in the parliament, they have it in about three or four levels. Now, you may recall when um, Alex Salmon froze the actual um, council tax. My niece actually lives in Germany and has lived in Germany for about 25 years. And she was telling me that... Angela Merkel, reputedly the most powerful uh, politician in Europe, discussed actually doing the same thing in Germany. And she was told by local government, no, that's our business. It's not yours. That is democracy. And that is what we are advocating in our constitution. Multiple tier with clear, defined authority at local level.
2: Well, thank you, and I'll, I'll, I'll happily support you. So, thank you.
1: We had a question. Well, we had a few questions coming in. Um, Alex McCallaghan was actually asking whether the Citizen Assembly is um, a reference for the constitution draft at the moment. The Citizen Assembly is actually coming up quite a lot in our get togethers, always as a um, good example of um, including a wide range and diverse. Diverse and representative group of people of Scotland to form a vision of Scotland. So, for those of you who are not aware of it, I think what they've done was they got around a hundred people that were representative completely of the demographic um, cut through of Scotland, got them together, and over the course of several months um, had sort of um, workshops with them on what they would like the future of Scotland to look like in a non-political context, but just in a purely um, civic view. And um, hence the question, I guess, whether that um, has had any influence on the constitution, which I think is a very good question because it's always good when we have civic organizations coming in and um, representing people, not always um, political groups. Um, The other question we had from Jane, from Jane Jones, I don't know if you wanna ask the question yourself. If you wait, I'll unmute you. Um, should be unmuted now? Not yet. Yes,
4: okay. no. Um Yeah, this is not uh, a different question I guess Jerry, but it was about when you first talked about um, insurgent leadership and uh, those that have been around for a while. Um, I thought it quite interesting one because I just wondered what you felt about um, the covid era and how sturgeon obviously has been handling that whether people because it's been such a weird time and very insecure and anxious whether you think people would appreciate those they know as it were that's on a decent job rather than at this moment going for something like an insurgent if you might describe it like that
2: yeah that's that's a that's a great um question and uh, i'm still i'm still sort of thinking about this because and this is despite i'm just, just do we puff here. With, with Simon Barrow, I've just edited a book called Scotland After the Virus, which um, is out in about a month, which the biggest debate with the publisher was whether that was a risky title, right? Because it's, it's a hope, it's a hope um, and, and a projection and uh, uh, and uh, an imagination and a little bit of a provocation. And despite, you know, I've, I've read and edited all the chapters um, and I'm still, it, it's just made me think even more. The area around the question you're talking about, it seems to me that, I mean, mean, we commissioned people, a whole variety of people that weren't just necessarily political here, we commissioned short story writers, poets, um, and and people talking about personal stuff, and it, it just seems that the emotional tapestry of things that have been Released by by COVID um, are so much wider and 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 profound than what normal politics is about. <laughs> so you know it's about life, love, death, you know, the obvious things, and and there's lots and lots of wonderful stories. Mean, I also got each one of my forty contributors to tell me anonymously um, how COVID affected them um, or or not, you know, and it, it's it's amazing that the the insights that I think. How how do we as a nation deal with, with the, this rich tapestry that where I'm saying yesterday I was conscious of the fact you know the Baftas in Scotland have, have lost a whole host of um, you know areas of production and in lots of areas we face cultural wastelands um, you know we face you know, you know wider poverty etc stretched public services yet at the same time there's lots and lots of relationships that have shifted and and I do think that I mean I don't know if you agree I, I think Nicola Sturgeon has done something here, but you know there's lots of mistakes in it and all that. But I I have recognised um, a public decency and and public duty and 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 listening to experts that you know we've got lots of things we've done wrong on COVID. But um, I think she's tried her best and 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 I, I don't, I'm, I'm just generally unless people are like lying horrors like you know Boris Johnson, I'm. I'm to give people the benefit of the doubt, um, but I think there's a, a thing there as well. But she takes the you know she takes the weight on her own shoulders um, too much. Um, we've got a centralised government, we've got a, a kind of centralised uh, uh, leadership, and yet there's this rich Scotland that, that you know, going back to our previous discussion with Robert, that I'd like to see that nurtured a bit more because it does need nurtured, It needs supported and encouraged and brought into full um, full life in a way. Um, people can't. People, we cannot. I mean, I. I already think Scotland's partly independent in, in in the way it thinks about itself. But to get to that final, you know, to become independent and to become a nation isn't just like we have a government that's a bit like you know the version of Westminster, but slightly better. We have to. We have to have a, a different kind of relationship between between institutions and us as citizens, obviously, not subjects
4: i felt i really enjoyed how she's done it i'm not an snp member but i just really get quite moved sometimes the way she describes things and she does seem to draw on this idea of solidarity as mm-hmm. against individualism and so on and and speaks in a way that i feel does bring us together actually i really admire her i have to say and a really support her uh now you know i don't mean she should be in office forever but i think i feel as I, I well. it's ironic isn't it a kind of safe pair of hands uh, quite like a cautiousness actually in this in this moment uh, and given all the kind of divisions that seem to be bubbling up around the whole idea of independence feels it, really kind
2: of quite an uncertain time actually. Yeah no I think I think that that, that is um completely I mean we're we're, we're not going to get out of this pandemic for you know at least until you know what spring summer next year at the earliest so this this is all like a watershed we're all living through and um, I don't know if it's just my nature or not. I don't find it that surprising in a way. And, well, I do obviously on one level, but but the, given that you know one of the biggest threats the UK government they had on their risk register it was was a pandemic, and the same was true of the the Barack Obama White House and and you know Trump famously threw away the handbook and uh, uh, abolished abolished the working party and so on. Uh, we're, we're we're just going to come out of it. Rightly, it completely changed and. When, when, actually, my, my first answer to the compass question last week, before I got into the, um, you know, direct stuff of lived life, is I, I've always felt the neoliberal model, I mean, I, I know it's a bit of a boohoo word now, it's used all the time, but we do live in the age of a global neoliberal order. The SNP are a bit complicit with that. You know, the Growth Commission isn't, I think, a very attractive uh, view of the model. Um, um, I don't want public affairs lobbyists running Scotland. I don't want people who are lobbyists, corporate lobbyists, uh, claiming they're not corporate lobbyists and making public policy. That's very Westminster. Um, but that global order is unsustainable and it is, it is inhumane and disastrous. And if we could undermine it, pull it up and 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 and, and challenge those institutional you know, views of the world in Scotland as well as elsewhere, you know, some good may come out of this disaster. Um, but we're going to have to come up with a different... I mean, I know there's lots of good economic and social thinking, but we're going to have to embed it in institutions and government.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Um, We have actually... um, Is there anyone else who's got a question right now? Otherwise, um, we've got a question uh, that... Oh, yeah, Alistair, um, I'll just unmute you. Oh, should be unmuted now.
0: Okay, can you hear me?
1: Yes, hello. Uh,
0: Hello.
2: Um, I posted a question in the chat. Uh, A letter in the National today quoted uh, quoted you as suggesting a deal could be done to leave Faslane to London. uh, Can you clarify your position, Gerry, on um, uh, what should happen to Faslane after independence and your thoughts on Scotland's uh, membership of NATO? Uh, and basically, what, what Scotland's defence would... Have you frozen there? Um, Hello? Yeah, I think you're just frozen. We'll I think
1: I've
2: got the gist of that. Um, yeah. I can... I can. I can did, you, did you get that? Yes, I did, I did. I'll, I'll try and answer you as fully as possible I, I, but... Go on. Okay. Have you... Um, yeah, sorry, do you want me to read the question again? No, no, I've got it all. I've got it all. Uh, non nuclear Scotland, okay. no, no membership, yeah. right? Um, right, first point yeah. I obviously completely support a non nuclear Scotland. Nuclear weapons are just, apart, apart from the moral argument, right? The, the, the idea of an independent British nuclear deterrent is just a farce, as we know, you know, we're not independent, you know, etc., etc. Um, uh, but how we get to a non nuclear Scotland is the question I think we just need to debate. And there is, as in a lot of areas on independence, right, I think there is, um, what's the word, awareness of the SNP leadership to face up to, like, the issues of the difficult uh, decisions that are going to have to be faced post-independence. Um, and one of them is on the nuclear weapons that just, just, this is an obvious point, when Scotland votes for independence, you know, let's say two years down the line after that, we become, we become formally independent. It'll probably can be like with the EU some kind of transitional period or so on, but we become formally independent. The nuclear weapons in Faslane, and importantly as well, Co-Port, the COPORT site, uh, like don't, don't stop on day one of independence. There has to be, there will have to be an element of negotiation between the Scottish independent state and the UK state. And my argument is in that is our point is, that that gives us, I mean, it's just an obvious point that needs to be said, that gives us a huge bargaining <laughs> bargaining chip with the UK state about how those weapons and nuclear facilities leave Vaseline and Colport. Now, in that, in that, the analogy I used once before was, which just needs to be discussed this, is that it's not an accident that Ireland, in brutal circumstances of you know, colonialism and military occupation, how did Ireland leave the United Kingdom? It left it, by agreement, debt-free. Just let me say, debt-free. And how did it do that? Because in the 1921-22 Treaty, the Ireland negotiated the lease back of three West Coast ports, which were leased from 1922 till the British government, to Churchill's horror in 37-38, gave them back, because these were for you know submarines and you know, use in the, the West Atlantic. And what it means is that for us negotiating a period, we can A reduce our debt potentially. And secondly, there is the issue of when those nukes go from FASLANE or Coport or whatever short period, you know, short period, there is the issue here of whether we could make the United Kingdom debt free. And I would like to see Scotland you know, nuclear free, United Kingdom uh, nuclear free, because I don't just want to see the nukes sail out of uh, FASLANE. And I think in that, you no, know, let me just say on this, I don't have firm political positions on every single issue in the world, surprisingly. And I am neutral on the issue of, of NATO membership. I, what I particularly see is, if one is leaving the United Kingdom, because there's various things of the SNP's independence version I regard as really unsavory, I mean, like, like the currency position in the last time, but to leave this union and to remain in NATO, at least for a period, because to, to leave NATO at the same time and to risk the wrath of the geopolitical interests. In not just the UK, but in Washington as well, and other places in the world, I think it's possible, just a little bit, my political judgment is a little bit too much to to take on. Um, And I I personally wouldn't uh, recommend it. I'm I'm no, no, uh, you know, friend or supporter of NATO and I'm obviously no supporter of, of nuclear weapons. I think the good test, sooner out there the better, clearly they're not there with consent of Scottish people, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think there's a little bit of a view on independence. They probably sail out within, I mean, if had people say to me they sell out in day one or year one, it's just not going to happen. And there's there's a what's the word? I don't want to use the word cowardice. There's the inability, lack of lack of, what's the word? bravery and honesty in the SNP leadership to face up to some of these issues because it's about probably maximizing the independence vote, I get that, but we, I don't want people to feel let down uh, the, the day after we vote for independence or then, you know, the day after we become independent. Um, that's, that's, that's my thoughts on that.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, anyone else got any questions right now who would like to ask them?
5: Alex, yeah, just unmute yourself Evening, everyone. Evening. Uh, thanks, Jerry, for, for the input. Um, I, I have a whole pad full of questions here, <laughs> um, but actually, I'm not going to ask them. I, I'm just going to sort of raise a, a thought um, because we could talk all night on the questions. It seems that this these are this is a useful forum, and maybe my input is. That maybe we have to have specific topics, you know, when we have a guest or Jerry, so that we can drill down on a topic and be prepared and produce something. I see Isabel's comment there about having a month where we focus on the constitution and try and shape something. And at the moment, naively or otherwise, I believe and hope that a referendum will be next autumn. So there's not a lot of time for us to get really solid in some of the the basics, be that currency, uh, be it borders or whatever. And we need to kind of wake up and smell the coffee and and, and get solutions to these. I don't believe we have to be definitive. Mm -hmm. I think if we're smart, we can have a sort of three, two, one approach um, to to say when we're independent, these are the three main ways we will approach welfare. So we can say Mm -hmm. um, today in welfare, We have the UK version of universal credit. We don't believe the Scottish citizens are satisfied with that. At a Scottish government level, we have £10 child payment where we've enhanced it and something better. But in an independent Scotland, we believe we can have pensions at the European average, something like that, that we don't tie ourselves to end specific, but we show people that there will be options, there will be political differences as to what we do, but we don't have to hang our hat on one version and then be torn apart by the unists. We can show the options that we'll have in Scotland. But I think these forums, Voices for Scotland, maybe we we have a subject each week where we can try and develop the things uh, together and with people like Gerry's uh, input so that we leave each session with maybe something that we can then go and share with no voters or people who voted no, as, as Jerry has as educated as with, well. so there's just some input there as to how we proceed from from tonight uh, rather than talk all over the place um every week
1: <laughs> yeah th- thanks alex And um, actually so i don't know if, if you've seen um recently so the scottish independence convention which is the overarching body um and voices for scotland was funded by the sic and we're still very close connected we're basically the campaigning arm of the sic they've um they're about to release transition papers specifically on different topics coming up in in the next month. And we will um, have get together specifically on those transition papers coming up. So we've got one coming up um, in November, which will actually be around borders with um, the expert who has written that. So I'm hoping that we'll get to the point where we'll have more specific ones as well as the more um, generic ones. But um, no, I I appreciate the feedback. That's really helpful.
5: Excellent.
1: Yeah, okay. Anyone else got any questions just now? Let me just, oh yeah, Wait, we've got Michael Picken um, raised a hand. Let me just find you quickly.
6: I've unmuted.
1: Oh, brilliant.
6: Okay, um, I, I live in Sc- I've lived in Scotland for four years. I'm English uh, th- through and through hundreds of years of uh, English um, ancestors. And I've always lived in uh, England until now. My support for Scottish independence is basically to kick kick in the teeth of the British state. Um, And, uh, you know, I lived in Liverpool, (laughs) uh, where a lot of people think likewise, Um, even more so after developments in recent days. I used to work in Manchester. You know, uh, the the British state is a a totally undemocratic uh, prison um and it's time to break free and uh, the fact that Scotland has a national identity to my mind uh and the fact that it, it had this act of union gives it a an escape from the british state unfortunately uh, apart from wales and uh, the the whole of ireland the, you know it's a bit hard for the english people to break free of uh, the state but um, it, it, it then becomes a question, but my, my uh, so, so my support for 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 the Scottish independence is, is predicated on that, and therefore I take a slightly different view to the ways in which these things have been discussing. The idea of having a, con- a draft constitution and circulating it, I think, is, it puts things completely the wrong way around. If, if Scotland is to become an independent state, then the best way of dealing with the constitution, the written constitution is to have an election for a constituent assembly or a constitutional assembly and then for people to put their alternative views forward to the electorate about what should be in that constitution and then people elect them on the basis of what they think should be in the constitution. They go away and write a constitution and then it's put to the people to decide. That's that's the way in which I'd see it. Uh, and the draft constitution, uh, you know, I realise it's a draft and it's always going to have something that people disagree with, but it seems to me to have less rights uh, than people have in Scotland at the moment. If you're Japanese and you live in Scotland, you've got the right to vote. Uh, you can't have the right to vote under this constitution unless you would take take out Scottish citizenship. Uh, you have to have five years work experience in order to become uh, a, a member of the parliament. That would have... You know, Mary Black would have never got elected, my MP, if, if that role had been enforced. So, you know, that, that, that you can find faults in any constitution, but, you know, there has to be a proper um, democratic debate about it. And some of those are fundamental issues, like should we have private property and private ownership of land? Yeah. Um, these, are, these are big fundamental questions. And without that kind of, you know, OK, we have a referendum and people then agree to have... Uh, an independent Scotland. That a whole process then opens up. Now, Jerry's also been talking about the process of disent- disentanglement from the, the British state. Now, the Irish government decided not, it didn't want any of the debt, but it also decided it didn't want any of the assets. And the assets of the British state are absolutely huge. Well, exactly. uh, you know, the crown jewels alone, of which we should be entitled to a tenth of, That's uh, are worth billions of pounds. So, you know, uh, it's not automatically the case that you want to be debt free if if you form an independent Scotland. So the process, how how would you see the negotiation of that process of disentanglement being agreed and finalised by the British state? Because the existing Scottish Parliament has been elected to run the devolved settlement. It's not been elected to negotiate with the British state about whether we have the Crown jewels or not.
2: There's a, there's a a great point you just touched on there, by the way, which is a uh, and I was trying to see if I could get an assessment uh, for this, this book on Scotland. Well, I said, notionally, I have to buy Scotland, but is that the UK, uh, UK's wealth uh, and the UK's GDP? Well, the difference, difference between the UK's GDP and UK's wealth, but because of this is obviously a guesstimate done by people because the amount of hidden wealth is about the wealth of the UK is about six times the size of its notional GDP because of the amount of kind of offshore things. And, and obviously, if you get to Scotland, Scotland was, and I was speaking to Danny Dorling about this publicly. And he said, obviously, in terms of Scotland's financial interests and so on, and financial institutions, it would be broadly our wealth to be about five to six times what our GDP is. And it just makes you think about the many Scotlands there. You know, it like was a maritime Scotland, so it's much bigger. And really, relating to the point you're making about assets, um, we're probably going to have to do an inventory of assets and the wealth of Scotland in in the this in in, in entanglement. I do think, I mean. First point is, I do, I do think like a draft constitution pre-union, uh, pre-disunion rather, is, is perfectly um, uh, fine. I, I do think the nature of how the, the the breakup happens is we have to, as a friend of mine that put this a couple of years ago, he said, we have to imagine it in a way of, <laughs> he put it as says rather than saying, as some people will say, fuck off, <laughs> it's a nature of a goodbye and a hello in a sense. Scotland's breaking apart is is a hello and an introduction to the global the global world. And so we have to do that in a way that uh, maintains relationships with, with uh, you know, large parts of the rest of England. We're obviously going to have some element of political cooperation. So so I think that has to be carefully planned out. I mean, I do find it fascinating that even in 2014, some of my pro-Union friends actually actually said to me, and this, they were being serious, they didn't want independence because they feared the British state would be punitive Post independence, And I just said to them, you know, this is a terrible argument, you know, somehow there was a deal done with Ireland, etc. And th- th- it does make you think that in given how the state, UK states operated since 2016, that there's no much truth in that but it doesn't then mean you don't, you don't, you don't um, uh, go for it. Just as a quick other quick point, just in terms of timing uh, we've got left, I do think one of the biggest things is in the indie Ref. I, I came up with the term missing million in terms of people that hadn't voted in a generation who previously had voted. Um, there was an addended um, focus groups of, of uh, non-voters in Dundee and Glasgow. And there was an the assumption by both yes and no camps, which I think is just typical of political campaigns, that because people then turned out to vote once in an indie Ref that was that issue sorted. Whereas we have 50% historic turnouts for Scottish Parliament elections, we have terrible turnouts for local government elections, and the missing Scotland are even more obviously a set of issues in wider public society and so on. Um, And it's something we just, in all our talk about constitutionalism, uh, Scotland as a democracy, the UK not as a democracy, just that there's a, a large part of Scotland missing from the most basic threshold of this debate, which is voting. And the Labour Party failed Scotland on that, and the SNP haven't, you know, they haven't come come to where they should on that. And there is the issue there, of course, a missing centre-left force to the left of the SNP, which obviously the SSP were at one point, maybe Labour were at one point, Labour blowing themselves up, that that doesn't help our politics either there. So I just think we need to think of the voices that are missing from our debates that won't be answered just... I know, I know you weren't referring meaning it that way, but it won't be answered just by constitutional, making new constitutions. We need to think about a wider democracy.
1: Super muted, Am I muted myself, sorry. Um, thanks so much. We've, we're at seven o'clock or almost seven o'clock now, but I know um, Norman's uh, raising his hand to ask a question. And we've got also another question from Jean. Um, okay, I'm gonna do Norman very quickly, and I'm gonna do this thing where I'm gonna ask, um, Jerry to answer in one minute and the same for Jane's question. So we get through. But before I do that, um, I was asked to say hello to... Um, let me check again. Um, to, Lo- to Lauren, who's watching us from Seattle. So hi, Lauren. Um, okay, so Norman, you go first and you get a um, very short time to ask your question and very quick for Jerry to answer.
5: Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, my- uh, it's a matter that uh, you know I'm involved in so far as I've donated money to it but it occurred to me all this conversation about direct democracy and people acting independent of big government and so on. what's your
2: view Jerry of the people's action on section 30? okay um, I'm not really I'm not really sure about it in a sense in that, right, to have to have an independence referendum it has to be fully legally watertight etc right? Um it doesn't mean completely we go down the same route as before. There, there are many things again about my point about SNP and strategies, there's ways of asking different questions. Um there's the Supreme Court route, route, route as well. Um but I'm 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 a bit wary of it to be honest with you, in a sense. Um I think it might be um yeah, it might be a diversion in a way. But I do totally obviously understand and respect the reasoning and, and feeling people have. We clearly cannot be. I mean, I think just to get to the third thing, the union is right on some level, whatever some people might think, it is based on consent, right? And if the union continually says no to Scotland, that just comes at political cost to them. That comes on political cost and attrition of the union. If they make independence completely synonymous with democracy. It's it's kind of goodbye. It's kind of like that's it, folks. You know, we can all go home. We still need to have an independence referendum somehow. But they, and and some certainly, I, I knew that some of the Theresa May team on Scotland and they actually knew that. Um, uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not quite sure the Boris Johnson team does at all. But um, so I'm I'm in a way sanguine in a way, but how we get from where we are here to an independence vote, it it might be a bumpy ride. And you know, um, good luck in your endeavours
1: super okay jane you get to ask your question quickly and then um we're finishing almost on time
4: (laughs) sorry i had one already apologize but a very quick thing about citizens assemblies and the missing millions you talked about gerry i have a a bit of a dislike about citizens' assemblies, not because in, in themselves they can be very useful, but I think as a kind of wonderful new shiny idea, I think it's not the way to go. They cost a lot of money and they take ages and it's not always enacted upon even what they come up with. So I, I think it's not always as, as brilliant as we think, but they could be used for some topics. I think what we need is a wider network of popular education, political education networks somehow, this kind of kind we, we, we've got tonight, but just really widespread. And so the missing millions might get a chance to debate and discuss and, and come into the, into the kind of whole discussion, really. I,
2: I, I totally I total agree with you. I mean, I'm very wary when things, I mean, because we all live in, you know, messy lives, etc and very busy lives. And what's very, the way anything can sometimes become this, like, silver gun, whether it's with sometimes some people it's like you know, uh, universal credit. Not universal credit, obviously, universal <laughs> income. And uh, I do think there's a thing about we are... We are fundamentally strangers in our own land here. We are not citizens in Scotland. We are not citizens in in the UK. And yet somehow we have a tradition that is completely different from from the UK that we can draw on. It's a point I made in in a book in the of Caledonian Dreaming, where I said Scotland, like all nations, is a society defined by myths. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But if we want to think those myths like the egalitarian, you know, story, the democratic uh, intellect story, and popular sovereignty, if we want to be defined by them, we've got to get real on them and act on them. It's going back to the first point, but we do have a different tradition about power, in Scotland and where it lies, it's meant to lie with the people. But we've often not acted on it at all. We, we I mean, there's people that said to me in India, why is popular sovereignty not part of Scottish law?" And you go, "No, the poll tax would never have happened. Thatcher would have never been able to run Scotland the way she did and impose stuff if that had been the case." But we can make those things real and tangible. And abstractions are only relevant, I think, you like independence. If they have a connection to real lived life. That's why I'm attracted to independent things. A it's a good principle. B, we are a political community. Um, and, and C, we already are half-independent anyway, so let, Let's go on with it, you know. <laughs> and and I think, you know, I think I think we will. Um, but we have to we have to measure up to like listening to the people who are not yet convinced, the people who are the people who voted no. And a lot of them were even open in 2014 and they're even more open now. And I know know several friends who are just waiting, waiting to like wanting to, to be at that point where they vote for and believe in and support independence. But they need a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more of a human offer that acknowledges the, you know, the honesty in the journey we're on.
1: What a beautiful sentence to end this night on. <laughs> that was really nice. So now I don't have to do it. <laughs> Jerry, thank you so much for joining us tonight and um, offering your expertise. It's been absolutely brilliant listening to you and um, also brilliant to listen to everyone else's points to the conversation. Um, really enjoyed that. Thank you, Clara. Okay, good night, everyone.
0: Good night. You've been listening to Yes Group Spotlight and this week the Spotlight was on Voices for Scotland. just want to say again we really appreciate Voices for Scotland for allowing us to broadcast this event over Indie Live Radio. If you'd like to listen to Jerry Hassan again and to what he said, you can catch this on Indie Live Radio SoundCloud channel. We hope you've enjoyed this.